Welcome to the Epiphany Lutheran Church podcast. These messages, based on a biblical text, interpreting the hearer's situation, informed by Christian teaching, creatively proclaim the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth for forgiveness and new life starting now. Epiphany Lutheran Church is located in South City, St. Louis, Missouri. Our vision is to be a community that puts Jesus first, neighbors second, and ourselves third by gathering to be served by him so we can grow to love as he loves. Learn more at epiphany-stl.org. That's epiphany-stl.org. This is an old alb. They don't make them like this anymore. It's hot. And it's got a hood. For if ever I'm having a bad hair day, I regularly wash and iron it. But I used to take it into the cleaners. I took it into the cleaners once right around this time of year. I don't think they got many albs into that cleaners. When I picked it up, the lady handed it to me and held on to it. And then she looked at me, and she looked at it, and she looked at me, and I knew something was coming. And finally she said, Halloween costume? Not exactly. You know, there are some Christian folk who are highly critical of Halloween. They see it as satanic and a celebration of the dark forces of life, witches, ghosts, goblins, and characters from reality TV shows. <laughs> and they are adamant, adamant, vocal, that no Christian should ever celebrate Halloween. Yeah, I'm always amazed how we're always against stuff. Have you noticed that? We're against this, we're against that, we're against the world, we're against the culture. How unlike God, who is for the world, God is for the world. God so loved the world that he gave. I've often thought if we spent a quarter of the energy we expend railing against the world and use that energy to love people, our outreach would be a lot more effective. You think? I had a conversation, not, uh, it was quite a while ago, with a woman whose opinion I always respect even when I know she's wrong. And she talked about Halloween as the pagan Christmas. And she intimated that there are those who consider themselves pagan, which is listed as an official religion, by the way. There are those who consider themselves pagan who are conspiring to make Halloween a larger holiday than Christmas. And, you know, talk of conspiracies always puts me off. And yet there's something about Halloween that's kind of fascinating, interesting. Halloween is the second largest 
holiday of the year in terms of dollars spent outstripping Thanksgiving, Easter, and Valentine's Day combined. And there are those who say that as our country becomes less and less traditionally Christian and more and more secular, that the day will come when Halloween will be the dominant holiday of the year. Americans spent $9 billion on Halloween this year. That's $83 per person. I think a half billion was spent on that street. Wow. We were here Wednesday night, Halloween. It was. And I walked up and down the blocks, and oh my, it was like Mardi Gras for kids and chaperones. Unbelievable. There were kids absolutely everywhere, and people out on the porches kind of throwing candy. You know, some of us hide behind the door and turn the light off, and other people are out there. Hey, I got a Butterfinger. $3.2 billion spent on costumes. You know what the number one costume was for adults this year? Donald Trump, Trump. no. (laughs) No. A witch. Followed by... Zombie was number three. Vampires, number two. Zombie, number three. Uh, Pirate, number four. And then any Avenger character... Number five. 20% of millennials bought costumes for their pets. We saw one. There was a, there was a, a, a dog dressed as a sushi. <laughs> exactly, I saw that. Yeah, I, have, I have no problem with Halloween although I spent $5, not 83, so somebody had to pick up the slack. And the $5 I spent was on Butterfingers about a month before the holiday itself. (laughs) But I do think that Halloween has been kind of taken out of its original context, eh? It's become disconnected from its roots. You know, back in the day, back in the Middle Ages, Hallowed Eve, the night before All Saints Day, was an acknowledgement that there is evil in the world, but that evil is vanquished in the celebration of victory in All Saints Day. The, The message was incredibly simple and clean and clear. There is evil. Those in Christ win. So all I want to do today, this is not even a sermon. This is just like catechetical review. All I want to do today is talk about All Saints Day and stick it back where it kind of belongs. You know, for, for years, we in the Lutheran tradition have kind of put All Saints on the back burner of church festivals. We've seen it kind of as this Catholic thing, one of their days of holy obligation, and we've kind of just passed over it. It's part of our tradition. And we need to put death and darkness into their proper setting 
and context, we need to proclaim that despite the darkest events that happen to us and around us, and there are many, and every week it seems there's another, despite the most hurtful and cruel things that can happen to us, despite the evil, there is victory for those in Christ, and that victory is eternal, and death does not end it. And this life and this world is but a foretaste of that which is to come. And we need to talk about what this communion of saints is. It might be the most misinterpreted phrase in our creeds. It has nothing to do, oh, it has a little to do, with the sacrament of the altar. What it really means is that those who have faith in Christ are one, that there is a fellowship and they are one, whether they are dead or alive that in ways we cannot explain or understand, there is a bond, a mystical communion between the church militant, that's us, and the church triumphant. As we sang in that great hymn, the fourth verse, oh, blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine, yet all are one in thee. For all are thine, all saints, those who've gone before us, those sitting next to you. you know, I found myself in a basilica in Buffalo, New York, of all places. Basilica is a, a kind of a step up from a cathedral. There's 60 major basilicas in the world, and a major basilica is where the Pope would preside if he were in proximity. So I walked into this basilica, gorgeous. Doors were open. I walked in, and I saw a tour. So I attached myself to the back end of the tour, and off we wandered through the basilica, and the tour guide, tour guide was pointing out all the artwork, etc., etc. And then she mentioned that the founder of that basilica was currently then in the process of beatification, that he was in the process of canonization, that he was moving toward being recognized as a saint. So I raised my hand. <laughs> That's when I realized I had joined a tour group of mature ladies, <laughs> and I, like, didn't quite fit. And I said, um... What are the requirements for being a saint? And I knew them. This is what she said. To be a saint, you must lead a model life. Oops. And you must have miracles directly attributable to you. I bit my tongue. I know what the requirements are. Faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Faith, the model life, that comes after. And there are those who live a model life without the faith. See the Pharisees. And the miracles, one of the greatest miracles of all is what happens in the heart of those of us who come to faith. The miracle that brings a whole new birth and a whole new nature. The miracle that, that turns a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. The miracle that brings about a right heart and a clean spirit. There are saints sitting in here right now. There are saints right next to you. There are saints behind you. There are saints in front of you. And you know, we don't often like to think of ourselves as saints or call ourselves that. It seems overly pious and braggadocious because we know the truth about ourselves, eh? 
And maybe we have not lived spectacular lives. Maybe we have not seen visions. Maybe we have not performed miracles. Maybe there are no healings that are attributable to us. But if we have faith in Christ as Savior, if that's at the heart of us, this is a communion of saints. And despite the fact we have not lived spectacular lives, on the day we breathe our last, we will know the greatest victory of all. And we will be joined with the apostles and the prophets and whatever dignitaries there might be in praise of the one who sits upon the throne forever and ever. Seven times I've been present at the moment of death. Seven times I've been there holding someone's hand when they breathe their last. One of them was Graydon Johnson, a simple, hawking man. He was, picture Paul Bunyan. I saw him pick up one half of an upright piano, and there are three of us on the other end, and he marched it around. Big, strapping, strong guy. 43 years old and a good friend. Acute myeloblastic leukemia. He was in the hospital, catch this, nine months. Three times a week, I would make the 140-mile round trip to visit him. Every other week, I found myself attached to a centrifuge machine with IVs in both arms as my blood circulated through that machine. The platelets were separated, put into a bag, and fed to Graydon, and we were blood brothers. Right around Thanksgiving, he was released from the hospital in remission. And oh, did we have things to be thankful for that year, and we praised God for his goodness. He was home two days. The call came in the middle of the night. Wanda, his wife, said they were rushing him to the hospital. He was asking for me. I got there as quickly as I could. When I walked into the room, Graydon was in the bed. His family surrounded him. His breathing labored, his eyes unfixed. And I walked over and took his hand, and I prayed the 23rd Psalm. And when I got to verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, Graydon squeezed. And I looked at him. And for the first time, his eyes were focused. He was seeing something. And his breathing relaxed. And he smiled. And two verses later, at the end of the psalm, he turned his head to me and nodded just slightly and breathed his last. And I am 100% convinced, I am 100% convinced that even as we were in that room, so was our Lord. And even as Wanda, his wife, was daubing his forehead with a wet rag, our Lord was laying a crown on his forehead. And even as I was mouthing the words of the 23rd Psalm, our Lord was speaking and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And while he lay in that institutional room, Graydon, simple man that he was, stood shoulder to shoulder with the founder of the Basilica, with Martin Luther, with the Apostle Paul, with your loved ones, with my loved ones, with all who've died in Christ. His body was there in that room, his feet on a far distant shore, greeted by one whose hands still bear the mark of the nails, who said, welcome home. It's All Saints Day. 
Today we celebrate victory. We put death and darkness into their context. We celebrate the victory of the empty tomb. The victory of the Lamb who was slain, who has begun his reign. And darkness is swallowed up in the great white out of those whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, as we read in that first lesson, which is our text. Halloween costume? Not exactly. Symbol of the garment of righteousness given to those faithful in Christ who wear forever from earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, stream in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So be it. Amen. Now may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ our King. Amen.